So January 2019, we're confused as a nation. This was the picture, 52% um, uh, to remain, 48% to, to leave. It felt there was lots of... The other way around, sorry. <laughs> um, there we are. I'm confused. <laughs> it was chaotic and unstable. And indeed, even until the, um, the, the result of the general election in December, if you were listening to the liberal elites, if you were listening in the media trying to I say I have to live my life in this uh, sort of this mile between um, our offices, Parliament, the law courts and the BBC. Law, media, politics. I'm living in a very small circle. And when I'm listening on the radio and I'm watching news like all of this, in a sense, a very small world, it's like we're speaking to one another. And I'm listening all the time to the Liberal elite. You'd have thought, going um, right up to the point of the election results uh, being announced, it was very, very close, that there was incredible confusion and great division. I mean, we have to say, we have to acknowledge, there remains great division and misunderstanding in this, this country on various levels. But no one was really expecting where we would be um, today, January 2020. What a difference a year makes. Who would have even imagined that Boris Johnson would be the Prime Minister? I know I've spotted Mike Davidson in here. Mike Davidson, uh, together we brought uh, Mike Davidson, Mike Davidson's case, brought a case against the Mayor of London because he personally um, refused to run, appalled Mike's bus ads that said, not gay, ex-gay, uh, and proud, get over it, in response to the Stonewall advert, um, some people are gay, uh, get over it. We found in evidence in those emails of Boris Johnson lying, of cheating, the judge said it was mere semantics. Um, but who would have imagined this? the situation that we might be in, what this actually looks like, that this is our Prime Minister. We remember some too, that the Lord reigns, the Lord rules over all things. But how did we get to this point? I'm going to suggest that this whole <coughs> confusion, this bringing to the head that Brexit has brought to a head, um, is... It was to be a proxy issue for a nation in rebellion. I think people were confused and we were divided uh, because as a nation we have become confused. We've forgotten our great heritage. And we got to this point. How did Brexit even become an issue? Well, I would say that it became such a confusing issue and a test in some senses for our nation um, uh, because, in a sense, because we were pretty... Um, almost uh, nominal regarding the great things that had gone before us, our stability, what it was that made us a nation, um, things began to happen. So um, across the last 50 or 60 years, we've had the rise of equalities leg legislation, the Human Rights Act in 1998, over the Blair and Brown years, equality, equalities legislation uh, coming in. But after um, Tony Blair, we then had David Cameron, and one of the first things that he announced on uh, becoming uh, um, on leading the Conservative Party um, in the 20, or becoming Prime Minister in 2011 um, in uh, at his party conference was that he was going to uh, legalise same-sex marriage, not be, um, despite being Conservative, but because he was a Conservative. Now, what that did for the Conservative Party was it destabilised the Conservative Party at that time. Remember, Conservative grassroots, grassroots Conservatives. And what you had was the Social Conservatives within the Conservative Party, who were the majority, um, were very unhappy about that. And that really, and they happened to be Brexiteers, they happened to want to leave the EU, but they were very concerned about same-sex marriage. That destabilised Cameron's um, power as leader, and as a result of that, he. This is, by the way, this is the way in which I, I. This is the way it's my view. It's how I watched it in recent years, and that. What, as a result of that, what happens is he had to concede a referendum, and that's when he then went 
um, to the election again. There was then a, um, and then we have the um, uh, the coalition government, which was a very liberalising um, government. We had in 2012 sex education becoming compulsory. That was under Nikki Morgan. And the 20, at May 2015, Theresa May um, issued um, extreme uh, talked about extremist disruption org- uh, orders aimed at targeting extremists. Um, Christians, she said, would be called as extremists um, if they believe in marriage. That might be a trigger. Um, she said that on Radio 4 on the Today programme. Government laws were weakened around Sunday trading. Um, trans consultation was launched in July of 2018, wanting to see a process that was more streamlined and demedicalised. In 2018, pledges of £200 million towards family planning, which was essentially the exporting of um, our abortion uh, services to um, uh, the um, continents of Africa and Asia. And we then ended up with a government that was unable to govern because there was such huge chaos and um, hardly any legislation was going through. So having spent years of our life tracking very closely all the legislation, all the equalities legislation that was coming through, over this period all you had was a, was a government, a parliament that was in chaos, doing very little else uh, apart from Brexit, but things were going through such as the push to further weaken, uh, weaken marriage over the no-fault a divorce, and also the attempts to the the extension of um, abortion in Northern Ireland uh, to Northern Ireland and um, no fault uh, divorce. <coughs> so we had um, a lot of chaos. Then it was interesting because the result of the election was they, was was um, Boris Johnson winning. Um, the Conservatives winning quite. Um, resoundingly. And I wonder whether the politicians that are elected today, whether many of them know just quite why it is that they're in Parliament. And that's why I'm going to say to you that I think that at this time, the salt of this earth has a really good moment, a really good opportunity to influence those that we have elected. But you see, the reality is this, is that the, the, the working class are very disenfranchised. The working class see all this stuff that has happened and, and they're confused and they don't quite know um, why life is so confusing. But instinctively, many of them are socially conservative. And as a result of what's happened, increasing dependence on the state or family breakdown or sexual promiscuity, they've lost all the things that kept them intact. So all the laws, all the all the good things that keep families and communities and societies intact. A government that's overreaching, that is, that is not overreaching, but rather wants to build up those that, that are um, uh, the, the working class so that they can live well. These sort of things uh, have really gone, uh, gone by the wayside in recent years. And so this vote, um, I, spirit, and I think that all the confusion is because we've moved away from the Lord Jesus Christ and people generally are confused and there's been no clear sound. There's been no clear sound from the church or, or from the how now to live. Now money can to some degree, if you have some wealth, it might not clear you get some of the stuff. But you know you've also got the privileged rich kids with access um, to uh, money as the drugs, and that doesn't satisfy either. So I think I'll start the backdrop, and that's why I'm going to get used to this clickers. <coughs> Alongside this, just to look at, see, I think there's some of the computers in Parliament. Let's look at uh, Sir James Mumby. He was president of the Family Court. In 2013, he said this, because I want to just give you some quick examples at the start of this presentation to really show you the way in which our judges um, once imbued, steeped in in Christianity in many ways, the way in which they're thinking, and the way where we have been having to battle in 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 the courtrooms against this kind of mentality. 
Religion is no longer the business of judges. The court should not try to be the guardians of morality because there is no longer one definition of right and wrong in the wake of the sexual revolution. Judges should now take people as they find them. Beliefs about matters such as sex outside of marriage or homosexuality held by the majority in the 1960s are as distant to modern Britain as ancient civilizations such as Nineveh or Babylon. So this is the culture of the family courts. This is the culture of Parliament. Um, this week, in response to the bishops um, issuing a statement that um, applies the doctrine um, of the uh, of marriage, um, we've had um, those of the revisionists within the Church of England saying, "We're a laughing stock. No one believes that marriage that sex should be saved for marriage." The Church of England's out of step. We're a laughing stock. And so again, the sounds, you, we get a little glimpse of the church being an, actually being a church, and then all this noise about us being a laughing stock. Whereas what we should really have is that the church's position on this, on where, where the place of sex should have been clear from the outset. Um, we've got Mike Davidson with us um, this week. His professional access to help people uh, move away from unwanted same sex attraction. Well, look at where the professional bodies are. So we've got the parliament, we've got the law courts, the, the professional bodies. This is one of them, but they all have statements like this. The British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy is dedicated to social diversity, equality and inclusivity of treatment without discrimination of any kind. It opposes any psychological treatment without discrimination of any kind. Sorry, that's repeated <laughs> three times. So... Um, it's dedicated to social equality and inclusivity of uh, treatment without discrimination of any which means that you're not able to help people move away from unwanted same-sex attraction. Uh, Gary McFarlane worked as a relate counsellor. He indicated uh, in training um, that he might have a conscientious objection to giving sex therapy to a homosexual couple. There was no actual couple that were discriminated against. And as a result of this, he was suspended and then dismissed for gross misconduct. This case is here with us uh, today. He'll be speaking to us later. This case went all the way to Europe. Here is our Court of um, Appeal Judge, Lord Justice Laws. Judeo-Christian tradition, stretching over many centuries, has no doubt exerted a profound influence upon the judgment of lawmakers as to the objective mer merits of this or that social policy. And the liturgy and practice of the established church are to some extent prescribed by law. But the conferment of any legal protection or preference upon a particular substantive moral position on the ground only that it is espoused by the adherents of a particular faith, however long its advance, tradition, however rich its culture, is deeply unprincipled. It imposes compulsory law not to advance the general good on objective grounds, but to give effect to the force of subjective opinion. This must be but so, since in the eye of everyone save the believer, religious, religious faith is necessarily subjective, being incommunicable by any kind of proof or evidence. It may of course be true, but the ascertainment of such a truth lies beyond the means by which laws are made in a reasonable society. Therefore, it lies only in the heart of the believer who is alone bound by it. No one is, no one else is or so can be so bound unless by his own free choice he accepts his, its claims. So we either legislate within a Christian framework or we legislate according to this judge subjective chaos where there is uh, no law, where there is no truth, where there is no backdrop. The promulgation of law for the, position, for the protection of the position held purely on religious grounds. So for the protection that says sexual morality, because we legislate morality. How do you make a law? How society wants to uh, protect its children um, is made by laws. Cannot be justified. It is irrational as preferring the subjective over the objective. It is also divisive, capricious and arbitrary. We do not live in a society where all the people share uniform religious beliefs. The precepts of any one religion, any belief system, 
cannot by force of their religious origins sound any louder in the general law than the precepts of any other. If they do, did, those out in the cold would be less than citizens and our constitution would be on the way to a theocracy, which is of necessity autocratic. And this is the kind, this is the kind of mindset um, that is being inculcated in our courts that, affects, uh, that, that is affecting the way in which we mould uh, the law. The government submitted um, in Gary McFarland's case where the individual in question is free to resign and seek employment elsewhere or practice their religion unfettered outside their employment, they are sufficient to guarantee their Article 9 rights. So your freedom to practice your religion is your freedom to resign. Do you see how it's an attempt to individualize, to, to, to make absolutely private Christian faith? So the idea that we as a school, or the way in which we teach our children, or the way in which we want to be public, the way in which we want to run our institutions, our hospitals, remember a time when, when the nurse would pass the Bible on, a matron would pass the Bible to the next one on duty, and the idea that we would infuse our institutions with, um, with a biblical Christian framework is something here that laws have been seeking to privatise. I think that as a result of taking our cases, um, Gary, Mike, Mike and Gary have been in the legal frame for many, many years. It takes many, many years. But as a result of taking them, we're actually beginning to push back. People are beginning to understand uh, the place of religious freedom, what the manifestation, what the manifestation uh, of it means. Contrast Lord Denning, 1963. It is, I suggest to you, a most significant thing that a judge cannot draw his own his principles of injustice from the Christian uh, that a judge could draw. Sorry, it is, I suggest to you, a most significant thing that a judge could draw his principles of injustice from the Christian commandment of love. I do not know where else he is to find them. The common law of England has been moulded for centuries by judges who have been brought up in the Christian faith. I knew your day. Um, I went for tea and I used to take Christian law students for tea with him once a quarter or for fish and chips. Um, and this is a man um, who was steeped in, in, in Christian faith and steeped in uh, the, the seeking justice um, through his Christian faith. And that was then the norm. So with this conference, I called internet pornography. Let's look at some of the statistics. One in 25 websites is pornographic and about one in eight web searches are for erotic content. In 2018, a single porn website reported uh, 33.5 billion visits in a year. We've gone way beyond just pictures of Naked bosoms on page three of um, of uh, the Sun. People are searching for more than topless photos. Within an anal analysis of top-selling porn content, three hundred and four sex scenes were analysed for both physical and verbal aggression. Eighty-eight percent of scenes were found to contain physical aggression, and forty-nine percent to contain verbal aggression. Fifty-six percent of men said that their taste in porn had become an extreme, excre increasingly extreme of deviant content, creating problems in relationships. 94% of teens said that they'd seen porn by the age of 14. One in three 10-year-olds um, have seen uh, pornography. And indeed, that was something uh, that I've also heard anecdotally. Nine and ten is the kind of age. Um, all of these slides will be made available um, to you. Um, interestingly, women are increasingly accessing porn. One in three visitors to porn sites are now female. Uh, an association of lawyers reported that 56% of their divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 79% of men and 76% of women aged 18 to 30 years old said they watch porn at least once a month. 
and 77% of 31-49-year-old men have viewed porn content whilst at work in the last um, three months. Um, there's also a stat that the largest um, web traffic going out, uh, I think it was at Manchester University, but across universities, is porn in the afternoons. I just think that we have to consider what we are doing, uh, what's happening to our young, to our young men and women. Um, Ninety-five percent of Christians um, that self-identified self as born again admitted to being born. Only seven percent of churches have programs to help those struggling with porn. Ninety-three percent of pastors say that porn is a bigger problem in their church than ever, uh, than ever before. And then a, um, a less scientific poll, but one done by Premier in 2015, was that 30% of church leaders access porn on the internet more than once a month. 42% of Christian men say they have a porn addiction. 90% of Christians believe the church doesn't adequately support those who struggle with pornography. 75% of Christian men view pornography on a monthly or less regular basis. And 10% of Christian men say that they paid um, for sex. So these are extremely concerning um, statistics that go um, across um, all the areas that we might be involved in, whether as church ministers, as counsellors, um, as educators, um, it, in, in um, network ministries, to we have to this this idea of if we're if we're to deal with this if, in a sense if this is the, the, it's like it's, it's like a it's a it's a toxicity that isn't spoken about but is evidently there and and we need to face it as a church in order to shine the, the light the light bright. Uh, publicly on all the issues, other issues. Otherwise, we're hypocrites. The demographics. This is from Pornhub. So, sort of another, another, another group of statistics. The average age they say is thirty-six, but that's I think inflated because um, you have to be eighteen to go on the porn sites. But in fact. Um, Children younger than 18 are accessing the porn sites, just that it's not declared. Interestingly, something else that I read was that teen used to be a top search, on, a top word search on the, on the porn sites, but that's, um, that's really been diminished uh, of late, probably because teens are accessing, are, are, are able to access the porn sites. And 32% of female, that's up 3% from 2018. So that clearly just demonstrates that women are viewing porn. The, all, the whole normalising of porn in social media amongst celebrities. Um, Scarlett um, Johnson says, I think porn, like anything else, can be enjoyed. It can be productive for both men and women. Um, this whole idea of masturbation being normalised, John Mayer, I'm the new generation of masturbator. I've seen it all before I make coffee. I've done more buttholes than a proctologist does in a week. I've masturbated myself out of serious problems in my life. Just think that this is what these these are heroes for our children, and this is what we are absorbing. We're absorbing it on the internet. We're absorbing it in, on the television, in magazines. Cameron Diaz, I love porn. Um, I love you know what I love about hotels, how discreet they are. They always give you that little thing at the bottom. Your room will be charged the same um, as any other room. No titles will be used. Um, Amanda Seafield, you can put a ban on porn. Kids. I mean, kids are still um, drinking. It just makes it that much more powerful. It's freedom. You should be free to watch it whenever you want. I love porn. I'm all for porn. Chloe Kardashian. Teen Vogue, anal sex, these sorts of things. But also, it's not just in Vogue, is it? Because that's what we begin to see in some of the textbooks um, that are coming into our schools. Um, it's stuff that talks about these sorts of things. And then... Um, we've got a lot of brazen um, disobedience within the church. Southwark Cathedral hosting um, 
Lutheran pastor Nadia Boltzweber's project, she sought to transform purity rings and to turn them into a vulva sculpture. She was over at Greenbelt. There are pictures of the Archbishop of Canterbury with her in Greenbelt. She was hosted at Southwark Cathedral um, to remove the shame from porn, remove the shame from sex. And that's the kind of thing that we have had in response to the Bishop's statement from last week, a continual um, stream this week um, of leaders in the church essentially saying that sex outside of marriage. And that's really what we've got to get to. Where is God's place? For sexual expression, there's one place, and that's within um, marriage between one man and one woman. And there's a sense in which I'm sick of talking about sex because we shouldn't really be talking about sex because, as a society, there is one place reserved for that, and it's private and it's beautiful, but it might point us unto Jesus Christ and to His church. That's where it should be, and just generally, and other than that. There are all these other things to do with living. And instead what we do is sex is everywhere. It's in our, we do make music for God, for Jesus or not, it's in our music. If we don't think music matters, um, then, you know, then what do we think, if we don't think words matter, then what do we think the impact of all those songs are on our children? We don't think celebrity influence matters and films matter, and what do we think the influence of all these people are um, on our children and, on, and indeed on us? And also, then the, the, the lie really that somehow there's no issue with it to do porn, there's no issue, it's just fun, it's just a bit of fun. This lie that we're told that um, sex is recreational, not procreational, not for one place. Kanye. I look at porn, but I still only trust manual DVD porn purchases 2007. He was creative director of the Pornhub Awards, but we know that this last year, he talked about a radical conversion, and a little bit like a Matthew um, said at the start of worship, he knows what it is to be set free. And what is Kanye saying? We've got to pray for Kanye. For me, Playboy was my gateway into full-on pornography addiction. My dad had a Playboy left out at age five, and it's affected almost every choice I made for the rest of my life. <laughs> age five, age nine. What you see. What we all see. What we all see all the time. It affects everything for the rest of our life. I know that Peter Benjamin is, is here too, lived out as a transgender woman, lived out as a woman for a number of years, but he talks about seeing pantomime things, seeing women, men versus women, and how those images couldn't get out of his head. His mother's clothing in a wardrobe couldn't get it out of his head. The images, the flashbacks. But, and this is, what, this is what the church the church has got a message that's powerful and potent to, to, uh, to point to, to seek a point, uh, to, to, to a culture that looks for light and bright and beauty Candid says well yeah you turn it off actually it's like with God I've been able to beat things that had full control of me and some people, he was quite brazen about what he was doing, um, but he talks now, but he had a mental breakdown, and that's what we were, mental health issues. And talk about the churches being in hospitals, how we're going but what, how are we going to hospitals? The people need to be safe to come and say, this is what I've done, this is what I'm doing, these are the things I can't get out of my head. This is the stuff that Gary McFarlane, um, Mike Davidson, this is what the counsellors are doing. I can't get this stuff out of my head. How do I get free? And also, um, people don't speak of it because they're ashamed, they're guilty, and it's secret. And when they can't speak about one thing, they then can't speak about the other things. So I speak a lot on homosexuality, and I'm tired of speaking on homosexuality. But the reason there's, why, talking, why homosexuality is a touchstone issue is because we're not talking about pornography. And we all, we all, we know, we, we, we all get, we, there's a sort of guilt, there's a collective, 
presenting issue is Brexit or something, but the presenting issue is always a proxy issue. Because the sin that affects more people is the hidden sin. And a church can't revive, a nation can't be taken back. Cultures, parliamentary culture, legal culture, when that's what the law laws see, nothing can be taken back without the, the toxicity being eliminated, without the secrecy being addressed, without the moral behaviour being addressed. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciples to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world? I'll gain sexual freedom, I'll gain the whole lot. As many women as many men, I'll do the whole thing, but forfeit his soul. And that's in a sense what we've done. We've forfeited our souls. And we live a half-baked Christianity and we model half-baked Christianity. But the gospel is real because Kanye says, for instance, he beat it. He can beat it. We can beat it. Cultures can be changed. Cultures can be changed. Families can be healed. Communities can be healed. Industries can be healed. Churches can be healed. Schools can be healed. It can be changed. So quickly, in terms of how we got to the judges, how we got to this porn, all truth in Christ holds together, and it's the last, it's the, it's the, it's the sexual revolution of the last 60 years or so, it's the, 19, it's the 1960s, Queen came to the throne in 1953, there she promised to maintain the laws of God um, and the true profession of the gospel, and she's presented with a Bible, and the moderator of the Church of Scotland says, this is wisdom, this is the royal law, the lively oracles of God. So that was infused, that's by way of contrast, isn't it, to Lord Justice Laws, um, Mr. Justice Mumby. You see that, the gospel right at the heart of it. But what has happened since then? There's been a radical social revolution. When the Queen came to the throne... 4.8% of babies were born outside of marriage. Today, the figure is 46.8. When the Queen came to the throne, there were 350,000 marriages with a population of 50 million. Today, there's 65 million, 66 million people in our country. There are 241,000 marriages, many people walking up the aisle for the second or third time. In 1952, divorce was rare, affecting 34,000 couples. Today, in the year, there are 120,000 um, divorces, and we're on our way to internet divorce, therefore not upholding the place of marriage. Any society, it's an unwin study, um, shows a society that um, does not uphold um, uh, monogamous um, marriage is a society that that ultimately fails. This is um, a quote I first heard from Mike Davidson um, when he was um, teaching, which he'd read from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but I think this is good as a challenge for the church. There are thus three possibilities for action that the church can take vis-à-vis the state. First, questioning the state as to the legitimate state character of teaching its children, sexualising its children early, of laws that it makes around pornography of laws that it makes around marriage, of laws that it makes around cohabitation, making the state responsible for what it does. Second is service to the victims of the state's action, so the children that are confused, the women that are abused. The church has an unconditional obligation towards the victims of any societal order, even if they do not belong to the Christian community. Let us work for the good of all. These are both ways in which the church, in its freedom, conducts itself in the interests of a free state. In times when the laws are changing, the church must know, under no circumstances neglect either of these duties. The third possibility is not just to bind up the wounds of the victims beneath the wheel, but to seize the wheel itself. And there's a sense in which in this moment where I believe that the politicians don't quite understand how they got to where they are. They need to be told, in a sense, because 
people out there are a lot more conser- morally conservative than you think. They want to be told, how do, how do I get through this chaos? They want to be told, what is it to be free? What, we need help. Our communities are in chaos. Our families are in chaos. We can't patch them up. The state can't help us. What is it that we can do? So we've got to seize the wheel. It's a moment to seize the wheel in that regard. To make it known. To be the advocates on behalf of the group. But it's also on the ground. It's to help those that are confused. uh, To understand the light of the light and the salt of the light of the gospel. So where um, the social revolution happened, it, around, it happened, and all of these things are tied, they get tied into pornography. Everything, all these truth lines hold together. Life, family, and Jesus himself. Well, abortion in 1967 also coincided with the decriminalisation of homosexuality. But as a result of abortion, which remains illegal unless uh, the mother's life is at risk or the risk of physical or mental problems are greater if the mother continues with the pregnancy, and that's the reason why abortions take place. But you then get these statistics. It was only ever meant to be rare. A few hundred abortions a year for very great exceptions. But the statistics are um, 21,000 England, Scotland and Wales government statistics the first year. Um, now 200,000 abortions every year. 850 abortions uh, today. Ab- abortion is the leading, uh, worldwide leading cause of death. Now why do we have abortions? We have abortions because sex is not its right place. That was in So we set cultures. When we tell our children, this is very important. What you do with your bodies is so important. Do not give this away. You say, we will set them free. We create a culture in our churches. We create a culture in our families. We create a culture in, in, in our schools. In our, we think it can't be done. We think it can't be done. If we say that the answer to an unplanned pregnancy is death, then we are a society that dulls women's consciences, that, that then abortion becomes contraceptive, sex becomes part of the madness. And when we're left in all the madness and nothing satisfies, you go to more and more extreme stuff, pornography. Because you don't do the right thing. When you don't do the right thing, the honourable thing, you end up in the chaos which then leads to more guilt, leads to more sickness, to more stuff. And we have politicians in Parliament. We thank God that the Labour and Lib Dem manifestos so clearly, they want to decriminalise abortion up to birth. Those, so let's think about that. We've now got a government that said nothing. We've now got a, 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 part, um, a, a party government that said nothing on this issue. So the window's open. Because the public doesn't want abortion up to birth. It's time to tell a different story. It's all part of the same truth. And 100,000 people are alive today in Northern Ireland because abortion was illegal. We want those 100,000 people, we want those numbers to stay the same, don't we? We don't want 100,000 people dead in Northern Ireland because the law has changed. Let's pray that they succeed. Um, and alongside all of this, when truth lines are crossed, um, when life no longer becomes um, absolutely precious under the law. You then can experiment on it, you can create life outside the sexual union of one man and one woman. So you have a situation whereby you begin to create, um, you have obviously um, surrogacy, in, in, um, sorry, um, IVF, the first test tube baby in 1978. So life becomes possible in 1978. In 1990 you have a situation whereby we're creating Embryos with the express purpose of experimenting upon them and then destroying them. In 2004, we have the first cloned human embryo that's man making man in the image of man. We go then to 2008, where we have the liberalisation of laws around surrogacy and around um, 
Estonian insemination around foster, and we've already had liberalisation of laws around fostering and adoption. What does all of this mean? That sex doesn't have, um, that life, families, can be created artificially. You commoditize, so, you, so if, if sex gives you a child that's inconvenient, the child can be aborted. If you are in relationships that are not marriage, but want a child, then you can make a child. Don't sperm, surrogate womb, like, for instance, whether you're single or whether you're in same-sex relationships. Suddenly, the, the distortion of a family itself, if you've not kept sex in its proper place, um, actually obliterates God's model for Genesis 1 family. This sort of thing becomes possible. This, um, it's a transgender man who wants a baby as a, by surrogate, so has a baby, sorry, by donor sperm, wants to become the child's father and um, the partner to be the, the child's mother. This is the new norm. These sort of ethical issues are the ones that we've been studied by our children. Men and having children together, they all, um, and so on. When sex gets outside its proper place, rising cohabitation laws reflect that, you then have no faults to also, it is the obliteration of, um, we need to be making laws to uphold marriage between one man and one woman. So that needs to be a policy objective. But the first place this can be modelled is within the church. And the, the only way that this can be modelled within the church is if we confess our sin. If we cut out the cancer. If we become porn-free zones. But the stats show that we're not. So we need, um, it's, you know, the church has to, we have to be in the healing houses. Um, set people free. And um, with sexual freedom, um, with individualised freedom, you then get a whole list of laws um, to try and enshrine those um, as permissions. So permissive laws. So homosexuality is decriminalised so that homosexuals can be free. Um, the Gay Liberation Front is established. Section 28, um, in 1988, no local authority should promote the teaching of homosexuality as a pretended um, family characteristic. So that was law. So homosexuality was not to be taught to the children in our schools in 1988. And I remember campaigning and briefing um, with regard to the repeal. Um, of uh, resisting the repeal of Section 28. It was only, 1992 only was the first Gay Pride Festival. So you can imagine the cultural shift that we have had as a result of permissive legislation. The, bar, the policy of barring homosexuals from the military was scrapped in the year 2000. In the year 2003, Section 28 was scrapped. Uh, gross indecency laws. I remember when I started out at the criminal bar um, Defending quite a number of gross, uh, gross indecency cases. Age of consent um, being uh, continually brought down. So then Stonewall, then you then begin to get not just uh, laws giving permission, but then what we begin to have is, um, uh, and therefore normalises certain behaviour, but then in 2006, you're bullying me unless you approve, unless you promote. So the companies, you have to promote this behaviour, you have to say that you are stonewall champions, that you're homosexual champions, that you're sexual freedom champions. And unless you go along with this, you are bigoted, you are hateful. Someone actually, um, two days ago on the, um, on the tube, as I was getting off, came up to me and said, Andrew Williams, bigotry won't get you to hell. Um, I was actually um, a bit taken aback. I mean, what? 
And that what's hard is that it's seen as, in, we are seen as the immoral. And to say these things that are beautiful and true, is simply saying that marriage is between one man and one woman, but the place of sexual expression is within a lifelong union of one man and one woman. It's seen as bigotry. And that's and and it is in part because we haven't created a culture in our homes and in our churches that says that it is not. By the way, I always get people coming up and saying, thank you, <laughs> from time to time. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> uh, the cost of all of this is real. In 2018, um, the whole breakdown, 51 billion to the taxpayer. So imagine the hope that gospel families, gospel schools, uh, gospel culture would bring to a society, gospel arts, Gospel parliamentarians, gospel law. Imagine, you know, Lord Denham instead of um, Mudley. The, the whole game just in, in, in the ether, all celebrity couples, this is a transgender couple. So they're actually now having a baby. This was a year ago, they're now this at Christmas Day announced the baby. This woman is the man in this picture, transgendered man. This captain of the army is the transgendered woman. And they are in our schools. They are mermaids advocates and they're in and around our schools. They're patrons of that charity and they're activists and they're having a baby. And it's followed. And again, it's one of the conversations um, that's there and prevalent. Peter Thatcher said this, we were sexual liberationists and social revolutionaries out to turn the world upside down. Uh, the Gay Liberation Front espoused a non-violent revolution in cultural values and attitudes. It questioned marriage, the nuclear family, monogamy and patriarchy, as well as the wars in Vietnam and Ireland. So we didn't take long. And that's what we've, that's what we've got to remember. It didn't take long this time. First day, probably 1990, 1992. It doesn't take long. So we should not be downhearted. Um, we can turn it around by speaking it. By, by naming it. Uh, by calling it out. By fleeing sexual sin. All of it. And promoting the path of purity. And we can call ourselves, we can question the current, we want a non-violent revolution in cultural values and attitudes, that's all we want. We want to put marriage right at the centre. We want to put family right at the centre. We want to put monogamy right at the centre. And we want to help men be men. Help men to be good husbands, we want to raise our young boys to be sexually pure, to be good fathers. Imagine all the fatherlessness that comes with this. And we want women to be women. Beautiful, loving. But isn't it wonderful how complimentary we are? When we go to a church, do we see visibly the difference? In the church, are we visibly any different? Do we look any different to the outside world? Or do we just somehow reflect in everything that we do, even in the way that we dress, even in our speech, and all of these things, the way that we think we should do the gospel? Do we look the same? Do our families look the same? Do our schools look the same? In 2020, the church is going to say, um, what is your is on sexual morality? Well, there's an open window right now with this new, this shift in political tide. Let's tell the church what the truth is. Um, we've, we've had a lot of the, the there you see even back in 2011 <coughs> um, Justin Welby said it's clearly essential to say that the same-sex relationship should the visible bonds be recognised and supported as much dignity and same legal effect as marriage um, and Michael Curry who 
resulted in the marriage of Harry and Meghan is um, pro-same-sex marriage. This is not a good thing in terms of culture setting and in terms of sound. We must pray for Harry and Meghan and the marriage. Nick Cake said that it will all become normal. Where in our schools? Books on the recommendable curriculum, King and King, Jack and Jill, I'm sure these will be familiar to many of you. My Princess Boy. You know, again, what you see, what a child sees, you can't get these things out of a child's head. I believed everything my teachers told me. Everything. That's why I fell in love with Jesus at age four. Gender, uh, transgenderism. You, you're neither male nor female. Increasingly being taught in our schools. What does this do? It confuses our children. What does a child age four want to be told? You are made in the image of God. Male and female. You're a wonderful little girl. Wonderful what we're going to do today. And what does God have for you in your life? Parents, teacher, Joshua is here with us. Lost his job as a maths teacher in Oxford. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glory, glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power. We sang that power this morning. Uh, it's the great, incomparably great power that is in Christ Jesus. The same power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead to change our culture around. And each one of us is in a place. And we're in our homes, we're in our communities, we're in our workplace. God assigns us to be culture changers. And He doesn't leave it to our own strength or ability. Oh yes, he gives us talents. <laughs> he's placed and he says, I've given you your talents and I've given you the power. What are you going to do to increase the talents? And he's with us. Courage is the flower of conviction. It is the flower of knowing him. It says, with God, I need, I've been able to beat things that have full control of me. With God, we're able to beat a culture um, that looks 